Oh, Martin just muted himself. I don't know how ready he is. <laughs> I'm trying to finish chewing. Sorry. Oh, okay. No, that's okay. <clears throat> I'm going to do a countdown. Three, two, one. Hello, and welcome to We Cut Heads. No, uh, sorry. Uh, the, the high and low. No, no, no. What is the name of this one? Shoot the Piano Player, a French New Wave podcast. My name is Spin. Uh, sorry, my name is Joel. Spencer will be joining us later. He told me to start. You may know this is the first time I ever start, and I just want to bask in it for about six minutes. So let's have some silence. Okay, now that was too much silence. So uh, tonight we're going to be talking about the movie Django from 1966, and we got a couple of special guests with us. Uh, John, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, tell us what you do. Uh, hi, I'm John Arminio. I guest on any podcast that will have me, so I'm very honored to be uh, on this one. Um, I work at Comics Connection in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, where I sell physical media uh, to anyone who will purchase it. It's fun. Thank you. Very cool. And, of course, uh, returning guest... Uh, well, John, have you been on before? Uh, yeah. Uh, as of this recording, it has not been released yet, but I was a guest with Scott Thorough where we talked about uh, the gospel according to St. Matthew. Oh, okay. I don't think I was on that episode. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, anyways, we got this guy named Martin here. Martin, uh, people know you, but g give us a rattle again. Uh, what, what are your credits? What are you doing? Sure, I'm uh, Martin Kessler. I'm a filmmaker, sometimes film writer, podcaster, all the usual things i've been on this show a couple of times so if this is your first time listening to me and you like anything that i have to say you could always go back and listen to some other episodes so thank you for having me he is an excellent guest uh i just uh had him on an episode of the soon to be relaunched please don't send me outer space and uh that like martin you're awesome let me just say that John, you're invited if you're interested on guesting on a science fiction movie podcast. Oh, for sure, yeah. And also, I would also like to say Martin is awesome. You guys oh, are yeah. flattering me. <laughs> Thank you. Well, yeah. Uh, so uh, the movie is Martin. Oh, sorry. Uh, Django, 1966. I already said that before. But uh, what's your guys' experience with uh, John? We were talking about this beforehand. But uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, my experiences. Uh, well, this is the first time I've watched any movie with the t word Django in the title. Um, I know there's many pseudo sequels or ripoffs or whatever you want to call them, and then there was one official sequel later in the '80s. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed this one. Um, I'm not a spaghetti western expert, but I've I've seen a fair share. Good, Mr. Kessler. I think the first time I saw anything from this movie it was in the Harry Hensel's The Harder They Come. There's a scene where they they watch Django in The Harder They Come. And I was like, what is that movie? That, that looks really cool. Uh, and I, I kind of found out about it through that. And I think this was before the Tarantino film had come out. I, I remember tracking it down. Um, I think just through like Amazon, they had like lists of movies back in the day where you would like look up people's lists and it would be kind of interesting like oh here's a bunch of spaghetti westerns or whatever and find them on videotape or dvd mm. and um, i saw it the tiff Lightbox had a 
screening of it. Um, so I got to see it in the theater too. It was pretty cool. It was a digital restoration. And it was the first time I had seen it in Italian, not uh, dubbed into English. And that was a really great experience. And I like the film. Uh, I'm just thinking too, <laughs> they had a, a live musical version of The Harder They Come. And uh, it was in Toronto playing, and I went to go and see the show, and you have performers, and they had a live band, and it was really cool. But during the intermission, they played uh, the scene from Django where he shoots all the racists and uh, red hoods, which was pretty cool just to have that playing during the intermission and make that like part of the show. Uh, so that was really cool. But um, yeah, I like the film, and uh, that was kind of my experience finding out about it. And then I feel like when the Tarantino homage uh, came out, it's like, oh, the secret's out. Everyone knows about Django now, but I feel like it still doesn't get talked about as much as I, I would think, but it's a it's a cool spaghetti western. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't even have heard about it if it... Uh, so I used to listen to this uh, podcast called Film Sack. Uh, let's just leave that where it is. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Like it was, I thought it was funny back in the time. My, my sense of humor has changed since then. And so, uh, but they watched Django, and one of as and I like I was so into the show that I was trying to watch the movies with them. I don't do that with shows now because uh, who has the time? Um, Martin, no. What? <laughs> <clears throat> Make a joke. Um, <clears throat> anyway. Uh, so I saw it, um, and you know, in the dubbed version, and then later, when I saw Reservoir Dogs, you know, I was looking up about that in my Tarantino phase, and I was like, "The ear scene is a reference to Django." I was like, "I think I remember that." Uh, yes, and, and uh, watching it for this podcast, I was like, "How could I forget that scene?" Very intense. All right. Well, uh, you guys want to plug your stuff before we quit? No, no. That's <laughs> what happens. I'm not the normal host. Um, I'm kind of curious. I, is it okay if I ask John a question? Sure. Of course. Um, did you find that it, it feels very comic booky, this film? Like, I was thinking a lot about, like, partly the colors, but also just the whole aspect of him dragging this coffin around that he has a machine gun in. It feels like something out of a. Japanese anime or like I thought it was interesting I was watching some of the special features on the Arrow Blu-ray where they talked about how the film is a big hit in Japan and I think it was even billed as like a sequel to A Fistful of Dollars weirdly enough uh, which like they're both kind of ripping off Yojimbo to some degree but yeah. um, it, it made me wonder if like I like you know Trigun if, if this was an influence on that or like there are you know, not necessarily Western comics, but like some comic books that have, I thought, elements of this. And I was curious what you thought of that or if that jumped out at you at all. Oh, uh, definitely. I think, you know, Django's trademark is his coffin with a Gatling gun inside. And I think a commonality with comic books or with manga or anime is, you know, a protagonist with, you know, a trademark weapon uh, or trinkets or symbols that that signify a character's presence or um, both protagonists and antagonists with uh, physical deformities and you know those are all sort of 
parallels between spaghetti westerns and comic books and so i i find that really interesting and and so this is sort of the you know italian version of that and i think the uh italian history with comic books you know there's its own deep history there as well and i think those um sort of cultural predilections are seeping into the western genre and so the combination of you know the american myth mythologized west and also italians as abilities is sort of what makes this genre so interesting and i thought it was an interesting contrast too just with a fistful of dollars because they hit so many of the same basic beats but like mm -hmm. for me sergio leone is operatic in the way that he's big and uh Kurbuchi is maybe comic booky, or I, I think the way he described it himself is like, oh, the Italian westerns, it's like a symphony of hyperbole or something like this, which you can kind of feel it work in this film. So it's like, oh, in the in the Fistful of Dollars version, Clint Eastwood gets gets beat up, you know, and he has to recover from that, and he, you know, he wears the metal plate, which kind of turns him almost into a superhero. But like, in this, instead of just getting beat up, Django has his uh, hands mutilated, and it's it kind of takes it that step further and kind of, I don't know, for me, just puts it in a, in a different territory that makes it feel distinct from, I guess, Sergio Leone's take on the Western. Yeah, I it certainly would more brutal, you know, right? Yeah, I, you know, I think, um, if, if I'm, uh, I was reading an interview with, with, Corbucci, and I think he he viewed um, Leone's use of violence as more ironic than uh, the way he used it, because I think that's... Uh, oh, and I was reading, this is something that uh, Charles Bronson said, that for Italian audiences, violence can be ironic and funny, and so that's how these movies were sort of viewed as this kind of hyperbolic comedy and that's how they were able to get away with it but I think Corbucci was a little less enthusiastic about that approach and so that's why we see some the like the really horrific ways that uh, its hero is mutilated in the movie I mean there's definitely moments where the violence is is not supposed to be fun yeah you know I mean there, there are also moments of fun violence too but I think it's it's pretty clear what the distinction is between some of those moments like you just kind of feel it uh you know Django mowing down a whole horde full of uh bad guys with a machine gun is cool but like you know somebody getting their ear chopped off or somebody getting whipped like that's that's not cool and you just kind of feel it through the tone of the film I think yeah Corbucci knows when when the violence is supposed to be entertaining and when it's supposed to be off-putting or repugnant or whatever yeah and certainly two years later in the great silence there's heaps yeah. of repugnant violence in that movie it, it's the, like the most nihilistic uh spaghetti western i've ever seen i mean like just kind of learning a little bit more about the backstory of how django came together it seemed like in some ways the great silence is the movie that he wanted to make mm. i know he wanted to make django also set in the snow and then i guess it wasn't feasible or it just um ended up where he couldn't so he's like well i'll shoot it in the muck instead and that the muck is something that i really love about this film is just how filthy and 
like wet and it looks like cold and wet and just all the mud everywhere yeah. like it, it's so much a part of the film's visual identity for me and like um especially i think there's like a shot at the end where like franco nero's caked in muck and like the leather on his uh vest is like flaking off and he's got the bandaged up hands with the fake blood kind of all caked together and he looks like not entirely but it just makes me think of like a fulci zombie where they're just like caked in muck and blood and stuff like it's just kind of like oh <laughs> but um i don't know I, I really love how muddy this film is yeah there's mm. such like a a desolation to, to both this and the great silence you know they're expressed in, in different ways but you know it's almost like the way i kind of looked at it was if the civil war went on an extra 10 years and american society society just collapsed and there was just basically like city states dotting this you know yeah it, it's almost torn landscape like yeah. it's um it's strange there's this detail like Django is supposed to be a veteran from the Civil War, but you also see like there's a the grave that he uses to like steady his hands at the very end. It's like somebody who died in 1889, so it's actually quite a few years after the Civil War. And also, I, I want to ask you both: Do you know how old Franco Nero was when he made this film? Wasn't he in his mid twenties? He was 23. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, like, I have the same feeling when I look at, like, Keith David and the thing where I'm like, wait, they're how old? Like, I'll never be that much of an adult. Like, I just feel permanently like, oh, my God, I'm in my 30s now. And I'm, like, still not as grown up as as these characters in these films. Um, I think, like, part of it is like, they, like, did use makeup and stuff to kind of make him look a little bit more haggard and, like, bring up the lines on his... Uh, face and stuff like that but it's also just like the, the dude doesn't look like he's 23 in this movie at all Certainly not. <laughs> he looks as old as clint did in a fistful of dollars yeah. but clint is in his 30s yeah, yeah i feel like frank nero i think of him as having like aged really gracefully but i think it's just because like maybe he looked kind of old when he was younger but then, like, at the same time, he's got those piercing blue eyes, which just kind of jump out at you that, um, I don't know, I, I think, like, he looks kind of old, but kind of young at the same time. And I feel like he, he stayed that way for a really long time. Like, uh, mm -hmm. the, some of the later Westerns he was in, you mentioned the um, the, the official sequel, which I don't, I've seen it, like, maybe 15 years ago. I'm not even sure if I would really call it a Western. It's like a like a South American adventure kind of action movie. Like it, it's almost like a completely different genre, but you know, you look at him in Kioma and like, that's quite a bit later. Uh, that was sort of like the last real big spaghetti Western and kind of an attempt to revive Italian Westerns, which I, I don't think it really did, but like, you know, he, he looks basically the same. I find <laughs> those movies, he doesn't look like he aged that much. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the I I have only seen him in well hold on let me let me look specifically oh he's in Die Hard two what yeah I mean, he's been in a lot of stuff like he you know he's worked with Fassbender he's worked with Bunuel he's he's been in like a ton of movies so it's uh, it's somebody like people yeah. might have seen, seen him in movies and not even realized necessarily yeah. 
different. A lot of these guys, you know, they came to be known as spaghetti western performers, but they also had this incredibly diverse oeuvre uh, that sometimes, like, there is this sort of stock character that they're able to fill in these westerns, but they're also have these, you know, this whole other career in, in other spaces. I know Franco Nero said he wasn't sure at first if he should accept the film because he wanted to do like more kind of serious, dramatic roles. And uh, Elio Petri, the director of Investigation into a Citizen of yeah. Suspicion, was kind of like, uh, like, does anyone know who you are? And Franco Nero was like, no. He's like, well, then you got nothing to lose. Be in the movie. <laughs> Just yeah. go and, you know, and then it was like this um, big launching point for his whole career. Uh, but like you kind of see you kind of see him bounce back and forth between like you know he was still doing westerns but he was also doing art films and doing a whole bunch of different things so yeah he worked with petri in um oh god the that weird haunted house romance yeah i think i think the reason why is because uh, petri's wife was franco nero's agent but that's the connection, but um... quiet place in the country. God damn it! Yes. Anyway, <laughs> Jank. <laughs> Frank and he was in ninja movies. He, he yeah. like he did it all. Like he really, he really did it all. But uh... yeah, I knew I knew about those ninja oh, yeah, movies. In, um, I'm just like scrolling through the uh, IMDb. Like he's in uh, John Wick Two. He's in Lost City of Z. Like you know, he'll just show up in in tons of stuff. Uh, cars too <laughs> so yeah frank and has been uh he's been everywhere i thought it was interesting um did you guys do you remember when there was like a news story that john sales was going to make a third official django movie this was like 2015 16-ish no no it was going to be called django strikes again it was going to be with starring franco nero where he's um He's like 50 years older and he's working in silent era Hollywood and he confronts the Ku Klux Klan during the production of Birth of a Nation. Oh <laughs> and my I think God. It, it's too bad this movie never got made because like I would rather have that than the Tarantino Django like oh, for, for me sure. and John Sayles official yeah. Django sequel <laughs> like set during the filming of Birth of a Nation. I'm like that sounds amazing. Every time I hear anyone talk about John Sayles I hear about another movie that he tried to get made that didn't get made that sounds so awesome. <laughs> I know I know like He's, he's a great, like, not only, like, a, a good filmmaker, but he's, like, a great writer, yeah. you know, in a way that, like, makes me wish that more of his projects kind of came to fruition. But, uh, you know, it's, it's like, interesting, too, because the way he sort of redefines Westerns with stuff like Matawan and Lone Star, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's, it's tantalizing to think, like, what would he do, <laughs> you know, kind of working with... Um, something that's already a little bit pre-established like Django and it makes me also think too about the ways in which Django goes against western conventions like I mean you think about the American westerns that were coming out in the 1960s around the same time as Django and like uh, I mean the, the whole like idea of uh, the revisionist western era is a little bit misleading but like I think you know, you still had westerns being made that were open. John Wayne, and... like you know, I, I think like it's interesting that the film Django kind of specifically 
targets racism and yeah. it's interesting how it does that so yeah i mean if there's know, I, like there's hollywood examples i'm sure you can come up with that also do that but it's like it's not even like the searchers where like oh wow this is like an interesting kind of examination of a man's it's like no the racists are the bad guys and jango murders yeah. <laughs> so like you know it's, it's much more blatant in that way yeah if there's any way to get mm-hmm. your to get me on the side of your western protagonist to have him kill five confederate gorillas within the first 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> right but I guess about, like, the whole revisionist Western thing, I mean, people smarter than me have <laughs> talked about this, but I, I think yeah, yeah. the... I, I've seen, like, David Lambert yeah, do, like, sure. on this, and I'm like, huh, like... Yeah, if the Oxbow is an incident, isn't a this, revisionist but... Western, then I don't know what is. Exactly, yeah. <clears throat> but I think the popular perception of revisionist, revisionist Westerns that came out of Hollywood, you know, your, your Wild Bunches and McCabe and Mrs. Miller... Because just the proliferation of very tropish westerns on TV, you know, you you had Bonanza and Gunsmoke on forever, and you know the Rifleman and Rawhide, and so those were just so traditional in their approach that I think they inundated America's consciousness with what a western was. And then, you know, later in the decade and in the 70s, we got what would become known as revisionist Westerns. So it's not really a revisionist of cinema, but of what we thought Westerns were in America at the time. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of phrasing it. And you can see the role that the European Westerns had in kind of reshaping the American Westerns. Like, I always think of how, like, you know, Clint Eastwood comes back from Europe and does Hang Him High, which is basically like, an American attempt to kind of do what the Italian Westerns were doing. And you see them sort of following that trend and trying to get into that, um, you know, more morally gray territory. You have more anti-heroes instead of a, a traditional kind of good guy hero. Um, and again, like there's lots of examples of anti-heroes in the Western genre before then, but like as a general trend, it's kind of interesting to see the influence of, you know these italian movies which kind of started as like cheapo knockoff like hey how can we pass off our movies like an american movie to audiences stick an american tv actor in there and try and sell it and then like how that eventually kind of reshaped the genre as a whole but yeah and i think yeah. it was just very de rigueur to have anti-heroes as your protagonist in the late 60s and 70s like you, you had you know, Patton and Kelly's heroes, like, how do we make a World War II movie with anti-heroes as our protagonists? And so that's just what Hollywood was doing at the time. So, like, it was also in its best interest to do that with the Western. I mean, what was I going to say? Something about a Western that I've seen that is is earlier than even the spaghetti Westerns and, and stuff like that. And, uh, it's it's not necessarily an anti-hero story. It's it's more of a um, like bad guys suddenly are realizing the uh, arm of their ways and uh, defending. You know, kind of going seven samurai defending a town. Or that's not what it is. As soon as I name the movie, you're, you guys are probably be like, oh yeah, totally. Be, like you look at the. Like it's definitely not a a clear line. Like you look at the bud, 
about a curve mm-hmm. westerns like tall t and that's obviously kind of transitional into the kind of westerns that would come later and it's like yeah sergio leone was probably watching randolph scott movies and being like oh like that's the kind of westerns i want to make and then just i'll take yeah. it further and make it bigger and shoot wider and kind of more extreme i think like there's a documentary on that uh, bud bodiker dvd set where they have like clint eastwood and quentin tarantino and everyone like that doing interviews and they're like yeah sergio leone was kind of just doing the same thing he just like you know for the close-ups he put the camera in closer for the wide shots he pulled it back wider and like you can kind of try to copy copy it but push it a masterpiece uh, the movie I was trying to think of is Hell's Heroes. Oh, oh yeah. From 29. Um, and le- what occurred to me right now is I imagine, you know, uh, Leone or uh, the director of Django, whose name we were just talking about. Cor- Corbucci, yeah. Corbucci, Sergio Corbucci. That's right. Uh, watching uh, Hell's Heroes or... Uh, you know something else before their time being like this is what it's supposed to be like 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 you were just saying but i also imagine like the creator of hell's heroes having seen maybe even like the edison footage of the great train robbery which is a violent movie like this um at one point they decided to make all cowboys good guys i guess that would have to do with the code right yeah probably the hayes code a role in that where it, it does kind of destroy room for morally ambiguous heroes or like the criminal gets away with that at the end stuff like that it did kind of restrict the, the art but like again you see like a ton of great westerns that find a way to work around that stuff um it's funny too like a lot of the the italian spaghetti western directors didn't necessarily like start out in westerns like um Sergio Leone, his first kind of big film was, uh, what was it, Colossus Rhodes? Like, it was sort of a sword and sandal movie. I think Corbucci also made, like, uh, not Hercules, but he made, like, I don't know, The, the Son of Spartacus and stuff like that. He, he was doing, yeah. like, sort of sword and sandal movies, and I think they were just kind of jumping on a trend, like, hey, these movies are cool, they sell, we can make them cheaply. Like, I, I think part of it you know i'm sure they had like a real appreciation for the genre but at the same time it's like how can we exploit this yeah uh, yeah yeah exactly there was this whole tradition in italy of peplum which is like the italian term for genre movies where like it would go from genre to genre and you know before like martin was saying uh the spaghetti westerns became in vogue it was you know these sword and sandal hercules things and um, Leone was an assistant director on the Robert Aldrich uh, Salome movie, um, but it just turned out that this the next genre would come to, to define Italian cinema for the next ten to fifteen years. What do you guys think about uh, Terrence Hill? Have it's you great. seen uh, any uh, of yeah yeah the, the Terrence Hill Bud Spencer kind of more comedic ones uh trinity and trinity still my name like those those movies are awesome yeah yeah, yeah i've only seen the uh the first trinity but I, I love that one yeah i think uh terrence hill he came up because he, he has a small role in the leopard which we talked about kind of recently yeah yeah i was just looking at him 
movies like um uh, i mean the funny thing is my my introduction to terrence hill was on please don't send me in outer space for a movie called super fuzz are you familiar <laughs> i've not seen super fuzz it has an excellent disco soundtrack uh, they keep they, it's the same thing over and over basically but it's so catchy it doesn't even matter and um the you know it's it's about it's it's comedy it's straight comedy for some reason he's an american cop and he gets superpowers and i i do actually recommend it because it's a lot of fun but uh, i know I he's know, in, uh, like seeing him in the leopard i was like oh geez i should check he's out the rest super of young stuff. At that. it's like oh wow yeah. Even though, like, it's probably not that many years between The Leopard and, like, some of the westerns he was doing. It's just, like, he looks so baby-faced in The Leopard. He was in uh, yeah. he was in one of the Django knockoffs that came after. Uh, I have, there's an Arrow Blu-ray that I have of it, Django Prepare a Coffin, I think. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, it's uh, Terrence Hill instead of Franklin Nero. I find they, they look a little bit similar. They've got, like those blue eyes and they kind of just yeah yeah those you know, two it, and it sort of makes sense that uh, like terrence hill's gonna like parody some of this stuff too because he, he's somebody that you can kind of easily slide into that role but he can also do comedy so that is i'd talk about is there anybody else in the cast that like is really a name uh from django besides frank on hero like uh, not as far as I know. I don't know, you know Martin. Is there any proliferate uh, popular spaghetti western performers in this one besides Franco? Uh, I mean, I looked and like the other actors had done things, but uh, nobody really jumped out at me. Um, I think Jose Badalo. He was like Argentinian Spanish filmmaker. He was in one of those guys who just did like a ton a ton a ton of movies so you're probably gonna recognize him um but uh good. i don't know I, I feel like it's it's still kind of the i don't want to like diminish the other actors but i'm like oh clearly it's no, the no. hero show you know? <laughs> yeah i just like yeah and yeah. if you look at any of the the guys in it they of course they're in 50 different yeah. you know spanish or italian movies because they're um, just taking work constantly i thought it was funny like the the hooded gang it's obviously like an allusion to the ku klux klan in america but at the same time wait what <laughs> well but at the same time uh they were like yeah it was also just kind of a way to like reuse the same yeah, yeah yeah for sure so... <laughs> but you know they're <laughs> like convenient for them. a lot of the there were uh, some of the confederate guerrillas really did wear these red scarves to like as a, yeah. as a signifier yeah. so it's it, it's a a uh, cost-saving device and an allusion to actual history. So. You got some real history right, yeah. there. The costumes I are remember pretty interesting too. Like, um, I find like that that like wide brim hat and the the long coat. Like, I don't. I, I would have to ask David Lambert about this because he's got like endless threads, which are fascinating, all about like the costumes and westerns and things like that. But you get the sense that like the um, the look of uh, spaghetti westerns like it's it's not always the most representative of how people actually kind of dressed and looked but it's it's just like the coolest that they could look so yeah. i i you know franco nero like his hat and his 
his long coat, the way it kind of looks in the muck, like everything about that image just kind of screams spaghetti western to me. Yeah, I mean, I I just think, you know, the people who wore cowboy hats were cowboys. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I don't know if I mean everyone wore hats. Yeah. Like it's it's sort of funny. Like now you don't really see hats as much, or like it's a baseball cap, but it's uh, it's something that kind of went out of fashion. Uh, I guess like 1960s is when it kind of became more acceptable for like a regular guy not to mm-hmm. wear hats as much like there's that famous uh, picture of john f kennedy's inauguration where he's got the top hat and he's just kind of like awkwardly holding it like what do i do with this thing but uh you know for a while like a, a man with his hat you know you're indiana jones you gotta swipe it before you can get trapped behind the crumbling temple or whatever so i wear a hat i, I like my hats there is just something keeps the I, sun I... out of your eyes yeah. it's, it's great <laughs> There, there is just something iconic about that profile, and I think, mm-hmm. you know, that's what this movie does so well is um, just mine that iconography um, to real perfection, and I think that's what makes you know the Leone films so memorable is that yep. you know nobody was able to make a poncho as as memorable as. Clint Eastwood did, and so nobody had that that profile. Um, but Clint Eastwood also did not have a Gatling gun, so Jenga has that <laughs> fun. But I I did I, mean, ca- I couldn't help but laugh because he he's holding a Gatling gun, you know, just like under his arm. Um, it it doesn't rotate at all; it's just static, and it would get so incredibly hot after about five seconds. So it's it's a it's an invention of pure fantasy. I know, like, those uh, those early machine guns, like, they needed so much cooling just to, you know, keep from basically burning themselves out completely. Yeah. I think it's, um, I don't know if it's, like, a Belgian, like, they still had, like, machine guns in the, you know, late 19th century, so it's, like, I'm not even sure what it is. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird looking. Like, it looks out of place for an American Western. I know you had, like, big Gatling guns, but it's, like, Kind of this weird little machine gun thing. It definitely looks like a World War One, <laughs> like water cooled yeah. machine gun, but with extra barrels. Yeah, I mean you do yeah. you do see those like uh, before World War One. They're just not that common. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was looking at like pictures from the Belgian Congo, and they had uh, also machine guns a little bit like that. So it made me kind of. But it also like, I think it's like very obviously like a European thing that just got like shoehorned into this uh, film that's supposed to be set in America but um, I I think about this a lot too how like at that period of time when this film is made and you know it's coming off of the heels of both Fistful of Dollars but also Yojimbo and I I always think about how like how stylish Japanese and Italian cinema were both kind of right around that same time uh, where it's like even you can even pick like a mediocre movie and it's got sort of this like innate eye for iconographic images, like you said, that that like I, I feel like it completely like blows everything else out of the water for a while, like where it can, you know, turn a poncho into something that's like wow, you know, or uh, what whatever kind of detail. I, I feel like both Japanese and Italian cinema just just had it going on right around that time period. Yeah, I mean, there's a 
another podcast called The Pink Smoke <laughs> because this one little detail became iconic. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Hmm. I've heard of that before. <laughs> I mean, um, you know, this podcast, it, it's kind of a reincarnation of uh, a podcast that was originally talking about Kurosawa. And I don't know how you feel about finding connections kind of between the those Kurosawa movies, the samurai movies, and the Italian westerns, or just in a broader sense, like the Japanese films of the 1950s, 60s, and the European films that you're kind of looking at right now. Mm. I mean, it would be impossible, with knowledge of both of those things, not to find comparisons between the, you know, here, heroic style, and the way that a focus is on poor people, not uh, for the most part, not the richer kind. Now, every once in a while, you know, you, you get somebody who's rich. But uh, when I think of Kurosawa, I think of, you know, either police officers or trying to solve mysteries by, you know, running the streets and stuff like that, or his uh, older stuff where, you know, it's the countryside is in ruins. People are living as best as they can, roving bands of of uh, Mexicans and uh, red masked weirdos going around. And I mean, what is Django if not a Ronin? You know, this former mm -hmm. officer uh, without a lord uh, killing people that, you know, he would have fought on the battlefield 10 years ago. Um, he's certainly uh, more morally upright than the man with no name. But he certainly could be a samurai if you put him in, you know, feudal Japan, I think. Mm -hmm. But I also, one thing that I found interesting um, about this movie is that it seems like Django has a history with all the major characters. Uh, like he, he certainly, like with Maria, the, the woman he saves in the beginning, he clearly has history with her. With Hugo, it seems like they've, like been in battle or maybe even prison together and he's encountered major jackson before so it seems like we're already in the middle of django's story and i find that interesting that you know this in this post-apocalyptic western landscape there's so much rich, rich history Im implied with these characters and it doesn't feel the need to explain it all to us it's still so lean i really love that about the storytelling like it it leaves a lot up to the imagination, actually, mm -hmm. and you're kind of left to figure out what exactly these connections are. You know, if uh, if these people were responsible for the death of his wife, or what what exactly is the backstory? And the fact that they never really come out and tell you just kind of leaves it staying interesting. You know, so it's uh, it's something that you see in in a lot of like the really great kind of. Well, I mean, fistful of dollars. I always think there's that line when. Clint Eastwood's helping somebody and it seems almost out of character for somebody as hard-boiled mm -hmm. as him and they're like oh why are you helping me he's like well because you know something like that happened to someone I knew once and there was no one there to help and like they never tell you what they never give you this like long backstory and it's it's perfect you know where you just kind of get a little whiff that oh there is a backstory but you know they don't tell you what the backstory is and you kind of have to fill it in for yourself or imagine what it could uh. be I think you're forgetting one key thing uh, that tells us a lot about the character 
and it goes Django. You know, <laughs> that, that song is I'll great. About <laughs> it's really uh, catchy. Yeah, I got it, it stuck it, it, in my head. Like sometimes, just like I, you know, it'll be like a decade in between me watching the film, and I'll just have the song stuck in my head. Oh <laughs> yeah, Elvis impersonation going on or, or whatever, Django. and it, it it just sounds great. Yeah, uh, when Tarantino's movie came out, and they played that. In the beginning, when uh, our our Django in the movie is still in chains, I kind of was like, "Yeah, it's a great song, but yeah, this is a little, this is too on the nose. Like, you got to do something else with it. It belongs to that Django." Yeah, I think you're right. And for me, one of the issues, just one of the issues, I've had with the uh, Tarantino Django is because it well, it sets it up like it's going to be an homage to ripoffs like these Django knockoff movies, but really it's, it ends up being kind of more of a direct homage to this Django that we're talking about. And I feel like the, the, the Tarantino thing to do should have been to make it like a knockoff spaghetti Western that you had never seen before, basically. And instead it's, it's not exactly like a remake, but it's kind of a reworking of, of some of the themes and like, you know, you have these very direct kind of connections where it's reusing a lot of the soundtrack, uh, not just the Django song, but like, the, you know, the, the score is reused in the Tarantino film and you have Franco Nero himself showing up in it and it kind of turns into like a legacy sequel or something like that. But I, I think like it would have been more in that uh, spirit of ripping movies off that Tarantino seems to be uh into that uh you know it would not be it would not be paying homage to Django, it would be like paying homage to um i don't know like what you know mm -hmm. Django prepare a coffin like that should be what it was going for but right i don't know that that's like one kind of little quibble i have with a film that i i probably have too many quibbles with yeah you're gonna get in trouble no i don't know i i also that's that's my least the the one that i like the least and i feel bad saying that because i i know a lot of people that like really dig that movie i mean there's stuff i i liked about it i liked when django blew up tarantino with dynamite <laughs> was taking the accent. it was really funny but um <laughs> yeah no i i don't want to like sit here and trash that mm -hmm. movie but um it's interesting. Like I think Tarantino also, obviously, like he's he's borrowed from Corbucci a number of times. There, I think, like in in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, doesn't Al Pacino have a, a line where he's like, "Ah, oh, yeah, Sergio Corbucci, like the third best Italian maker of westerns." Yeah, yeah. it just feels like kind of Tarantino, mm -hmm. you know, working his own little like thing into it. Mm -hmm. but, uh, <laughs> Or second best yeah. maker of Italian western, some kind of line like that. I think he has uh, Al Pacino in yeah. the movie. I think, uh, I think they also name drop him during the scene um, where Leo is actually goes to Italy and does yeah. that stuff. Yeah, and yeah. another director I can't remember. Uh, but they do name a couple of real directors, uh, and yeah. it's it's obviously like referencing a couple of real westerns like navajo joe mm -hmm. and stuff like that it's kind of uh, meant to be paralleling uh, 
But yeah, I, I, I wish that, you know, a lot of filmmakers who are self-consciously alluding to or ripping off past movies, I think so often they forget what made those movies fun. You know, like, just the fact that you're... Spaghetti Western is two and a half hours long. Uh, it's like you're losing sight of. Well, and also that's tr- it's trying to make fun out of like slavery. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Like it's it, it starts getting to this kind of questionable yeah. territory about like, and I feel like to some degree I, I think the film is kind of examining that idea, but it's also like it's not really seriously trying to pick apart its own. Kind yeah. Of, it, it's trying to do the Verho- the Paul Verhoeven thing events. of using a violent action movie to satirize violent action movies, but and and doing that with a spaghetti western, but it, instead it's failing. I, I think o- overall, well, there are things I like oh, about yeah, it, but I mean, it, it's hard to know exactly what's going on in, in yeah, Tarantino's yeah. mind when he does some of these because he'll bring up interesting oh, ideas sure. and then it's like, oh, like. You know, I mean, there's there's definitely stuff in his films like um, *Glorious Bastards*, which is also kind of like an homage to Italian cinema, of course. But like, ah, that's really interesting that like you're making a film about uh, you know Nazism and the Holocaust, and like the finale is like a room full of people being burned alive that you're supposed to be cheering for, and like you know the the whole idea of like the role that cinema can play as a weapon and be propaganda, and it's like it's almost like those ideas are kind of present in the film but then like oh he doesn't examine them he's just like and you know what they're fun guess what yeah. like i'm enjoying myself so you know it's hard to fault him i guess but it's just like oh, i kind of wish you would actually delve into you know what that really means or what the consequences of this are or you know any any number of things like i feel like there are definitely interesting things that come up in his movies but i, I also find them deeply mm-hmm. frustrating yeah, so definitely. i think um I know this is a horror film, so a different genre, but I think X does a much better job of taking well-worn tropes and sort of putting them in, in like, modern cinematic language or, or context or whatever, and ha- and having that fun, but also examining, you know, why is this in a horror movie? You know, why are we repelled by these images and, and playing with that in an interesting way? So I think... It's also, I find like it's it's hard to do interesting pastiche, and I feel like the, really the best pastiche is when somebody takes what's been done and kind of rearranges it in a way that makes it um, into something mm-hmm. new or something that couldn't have been done at that time. Like I, I find, I mean, we're we're kind of, I don't know what topic we're getting yeah. to now, but like I, I I do find like a lot of films that try to be of a particular era uh, to have I don't know, certain, certain shortcomings um, like I thought it was so strange when you had that burst of like Grindhouse homage films that came out with Tarantino and Robert Rodriguez making the Grindhouse double feature movie and like uh, you could tell that there were people who weren't really watching old Grindhouse movies there were people who were watching like death proof and yeah. planet terror you know and like doing i don't know like some of the stuff like robert rodriguez making the um excuse me robert rodriguez making the machete movies where he's like clearly shooting them digitally and throwing on the like old film filter and it just looks like awful yeah. and it's it's like him kind of making fun of 
the sort of low budget films that he actually kind of got started off with and like something about those feels so mean spirited yeah, I mean, and then you have uh, like Hobo with the Shotgun which I uh, I don't think the fake trailer was included with the American release uh, it was just mm. with the Canadian release where we got the fake trailer for Hobo with the Shotgun mixed in with the Grindhouse but like the film that came out of that I thought like oh this actually kind of recaptures the spirit yeah. of old exploitation low budget films because it's also like a low budget exploitation film it doesn't have this like huge budget and it, it is the kind of thing that like Rutger Hauer would have done in the yeah. 90s but uh, you know it's so hard to do you know like say you have a budget like Tarantino did to make uh, Django Unchained and you have big name stars like Jamie Foxx and Leo DiCaprio and it's like trying to trying to recreate that spontaneity of these Italian westerns where they were just trying to make a buck but also kind of like bubbling with creativity mm-hmm. I, I think it's really hard to reproduce that like you know at the end all you can really do I think is is try to just imitate what they've done but um, I don't know it's it's a complicated yeah, I, I, thing to I, <laughs> pick apart I love the idea of you know taking those grindhouse or spaghetti western posters and like following through on them like, oh, no, our movie mm. is going to have those huge explosions and car chases that the, the posters promise. But I think part of the the magic of going to a grindhouse theater was, like, not knowing what kind of insanity you would see. Like, is this going to be a re-edited version of two different movies that you, you paid full price yeah. for last week? Or, you know... Is the film gonna reach the end before it burns out? You know, like, <laughs> I mean, I, I never had that grindhouse experience, but like, it's a lot like when I was getting into film through video mm-hmm. rentals, and it was like that feeling that you're describing of, oh, I hope this lives up to the the cover art on the box, and every once in a while you get a movie like Scanners or Split Second where it's like, wow, that's exactly yeah, what yeah, that yeah. cover promised, but a lot of them are are you know just kind of trash. So, but you know, if we're just Getting back to, to Django for a second, um, you know, w- w- one of the <laughs> one of the ideas that you know attracts me as a like a recovering Catholic slash Catholic, um, just and this is something that even when I would watch like the Good, the Bad, the Ugly on TV as a little kid is just like the proliferation of crucifixes <laughs> in these movies, just it fields and fields of crosses, you know without a priest um so i think that imagery just so striking uh, Django himself is like clutching a, a cross at the end of the movie where he's trying to support his his gun on it when his hands are broken so the idea of him you know using a cross to to kill literally uh, the film literally starts with someone being whipped and then a cross prepared for them so you're like going through the passion at the very beginning of the movie, and so this is all just so <laughs> goddamn Italian. You also have that sort of preaching character yeah. in it. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and that is a, a through line through a lot of spaghetti westerns, you know, because Italians themselves like can't escape, you know, the Vatican being like literally over there that you could see the Pope's house, and that just filters through <laughs> all all these films. Um, but it is just something that is always going to spark my interest, uh, and I, I sort of can't escape it. 
I see. Now, now I'm thinking about that. Now I'm thinking about Pasolini. Pasolini didn't do a western. That would have been something. But, uh, he's got some. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have a feeling it would have been kind of a horny western. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but like what, what you're describing, it made me think a lot of um, Robocop, which is also very informed by Christianity. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, there, there's like that whole aspect of Django having his uh, hands broken and mutilated and then like him trying to take aim at the end where he, he takes off the thing. It sort of made me think of like at the end of Robocop when he's he's got to remove his... Um, Visor, visor which helps him aim and it's like he's trying to get his aim back and i <laughs> like there is something a little bit um you know similar between uh django and robocop with the, like the over-the-top violence and that kind of christian imagery sort of sprinkled throughout but and even the fact that he's killing with know, a machine for yeah. so much of the movie this mechanical gun yeah yeah it's pretty yeah, cool yeah for sure <laughs> no, i'm not gonna downplay it. but it, it is weird that even with the over-the-top body count, at least compared to a lot of other spaghetti westerns that would come later, there's very little actual blood in this movie. Like, none of the people who are mowed down by bullets have any visible blood on them. The blood comes when we like the... we see Django's hands get smashed, but that's about it. Yeah. I almost feel like the, oh, the, the mock is more effective also. than, like, the, the bright red fake yeah. blood. <laughs> like, you know, the... The scene where he mows down all those people, like, first of all, I guess, like, there are probably practical reasons why it would be hard to squib up a bunch of people like that. But it's also, like, something about the the muted colors and the red and that, like, visually, that whole sequence really works very well for me, I think, um, in a way that, like, I don't mind that there's not really blood there. It just just kind of looks right. And that's kind of what makes, like, earlier I was saying, you know, there's times when the violence is fun in this movie and you know that's definitely one and it almost feels like if you've made it super bloody i don't know if that would necessarily be the the right effect but um again i'm still thinking of robocop but like i always think a a really great example of what i think good direction in a movie is is you know kind of being in control of what an audience is feeling at any given moment so you have a scene like the one where the the executive in the boardroom is machine gunned and it's really funny and then, like, two minutes later, you have a scene where uh, Alex Murphy is is blown apart by guns, and it's basically the exact same scene, except it's completely tragic. Yeah. Like, it's just the, the tone changes. So, you know, I think, like, for me, sometimes I, I see a film, and it's like, ah, what was the tone supposed to be for this particular moment? And you realize, oh, like, maybe it doesn't really have a good direction to it. It doesn't know what you should be feeling. It doesn't know where to direct your emotions, maybe, but... Yeah. Um, for me, Kabuchi, he was actually pretty fantastic at that. Like, I think Django, obviously, but also I, I think, like, The Great Silence is a really great example of somebody who's very much in control of tone and atmosphere. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think he he uses all the elements at his disposal from his from his actors to the way he carves out his, his scenery to, to the music. Yeah, he, he really is able to manipulate tone very well. So I'm thinking about the violence, which, which we we got to keep talking about the violence. It's a violent movie. Uh, it, so I didn't I didn't get to finish my my rewatch tonight. I, I got an hour 
Tanyan, so I was like 23 minutes away from the ending. Uh, whenever Django is taking out targets, it's, it's a simple like one-hit kill kind of thing. It's like they're, they're dead as soon as that bullet touches the outside of their clothing. But with the, the very violent parts, it's usually, I, I, you know, uh, one of Django's enemies or somebody who's just not Django, right? You know, they're cutting off the ears that the Mexican army people who show up and before that whipping, like whipping the lady in the beginning, which is kind of violent. You see blood on her yeah. back. It sets that tone thing. Uh, and it, it never, never made sense to me until this time. Why they were, the Mexicans were whipping her and then that they all get shot. And then those guys are like, well, might as well, might as well burn this person while we're here. But now I realize she ran away. They didn't like that. Uh, by the way, so Spencer is not going to be able to join us for this episode. Just to let you guys know. I'm sorry, Spencer. But he you, did Spencer. send me a message about the movie. He said, <clears throat> it took two days to get through Django. The dub still makes me out, or takes me out of it. I tried, but it still falls flat for me. Yojimbo Light. I said, okay, I'll just say that. And he said, Toshiro, greater than Franco. So like, well, yes, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of of uh, Franco Nero movies. But <laughs> anyways, I guess he didn't like it. That's too bad. I like it a lot. I'm, I mean, I, mean how, I, I, I think the dub is, is also not like... I'm somebody who doesn't mind dubbing, especially when you're talking about like Italian movies where like there is no original language version. It's everyone was talking in their own yeah. language and it's all dubbed into whatever. Yeah. But I would say this one is not particularly good because it's not Franco Nero dubbing mm -hmm. his own voice. I think like that's kind of mm -hmm. the big hindrance with the English dub for this movie. Um, and I, I would say like the Italian version in this case is preferable, but um, there are other other movies where I, w I would say it's fine to watch the dubbed version yeah, yeah. I, I think for italian cinema um, unless you're doing something like Antoni antonioni or pasolini it, it just comes with the territory I, I definitely had that impediment to my ability to enjoy italian horror movies and italian westerns uh, for a long time but i i forced myself to get over it so i could enjoy this or or like fucking suspiria like I should just be able to enjoy Suspiria, oh, yeah. you know? <laughs> Sometimes the, the dubbing, yeah. too, can put you in this almost, like, dreamy state because it's not quite yeah. reality. Like, the way you're watching and listening to people, something about it kind of puts me in this other state of mind where, like, it's easier to accept something like Django or, um, you know, Suspiria. Like, I think Suspiria is a better example uh, because it's so kind of outside of reality and the weird sound design of having it dubbed and just mm -hmm. yeah some, something about it I think like actually the dubbing helps me get into the right mood for something like Suspiria mm -hmm. if that yeah. makes sense I heard that people whose names start with the letter S are really snakes <laughs> what 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 What's wrong with you, crazy person? Yeah, uh, I mean, saying I, saying a movie is not as good as Yojimbo is not like a huge yeah. insult. Like most yeah. movies no, are not no, as no. good as Yojimbo, so yeah. it's okay. 
Yeah, I make an argument that the Godfather is not as good as Yojimbo. Oh, well, that it. goes without saying. There's too many weapons yeah. in the Godfather and not enough samurai swords <laughs> cutting people up. So. That's, yeah, I like yeah. the weddings in Yojimbo. <laughs> uh, what was I going to say? Something about... Dang, I'm sorry. I, I keep losing the, the speech. Uh, thing I was going to say, not not because uh, you guys are passing by, it's because I, I've been exploring the westerns that are actually available to watch. I always feel like this. Uh, I'll watch a western, and I'll be like, oh, that was okay, or possibly, oh, that was really good, and I'll want to watch one, and then I'll just completely lose enthusiasm, and then I'll think to myself, like, oh, I don't really like westerns, and it'll happen again. Arrow <laughs> uh, Video's put out a couple of the Italian ones. Um, mm. I've got a few on my shelf. I have Kilma, which I mentioned. Uh, I've got A Pistol for Ringo, A Return of Ringo. I've got Dave Anger with Lee Van Cleef, who was in uh, For a Few Dollars More, and The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, and Escape from New York. Yeah, and Escape from <laughs> New York. <laughs> but, um, like, Arrow video, I find like they're they're pretty good about putting a nice uh, presentation, good restorations usually, and uh, a bunch of special features. So like, uh, I've got a couple of those because some of those like I, I remember there was a period of time when like especially during the VHS era or early DVD era where like you'd get some of these movies and they would just look mm -hmm. awful, like borderline yeah. unwatchable. <laughs> the condition of some of these uh, Italian westerns. Um, I think actually like the Trinity and Trinity still my name. Um, I think the first version I had on VHS, I got like at a gas station and they looked pretty bad. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but gas station movies are pretty, I mean, that's, that's an adventure. I've got a couple of good movies at like weird places, like gas stations or grocery stores. Um, Seven Eleven was briefly carrying like Blu-rays and they had some good titles for like five bucks. My, my favorite yeah. are like the kind of regional stores that like carry movies that you you can't really find everywhere else like mm. I, I always figured if I go to Texas I would want to see some of those um, like some of the Walmarts will carry Mexican films that you can't find anywhere else you know and you can get like some of the cool narco cinema and stuff like that they'll just carry it like gas stations or grocery stores and I'm like yeah. oh like those movies are so hard to find and they're so cool I'd want to pick up a bunch of them ever and that's part of the united states i i ran into a literal bucket like one of those like barrels <laughs> and uh it was entirely full of dvds and a co and some some blu-rays that were all mexican language films and it was just in uh my my hometown in california at a local rite aid like you know they They've always carried some uh, extra, you know, things like you walk in Rite Aid, like, oh, damn, I got to get a gift. Uh, I hope <laughs> the kids like uh, uh, Cook Off Part 5 or whatever that one is called. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, like, I kept looking at it, and, and they've got ridiculous covers. And, like, I took a picture of one, and I posted on the internet, and I was like, geez, what the heck is going on with this? And somebody was like, oh, that guy's a prolific, oh, <laughs> prolific, not plurific. Plurific explains it all. Anyways, he was like a well-known actor, like, in Mexico, but in the States, just, you know, yeah. he, they wouldn't recognize him. Yeah. 
So I missed my chance is what I'm saying. I could have bought a barrel. <laughs> a whole barrel full of movies. It's mm. like, um, I mean, now I've downsized my physical media collection a lot, but there were a couple times where it's like, oh, a video store is going out of business? Like, look out, World yeah. Martin's coming to town. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. That's happened a couple of times um, for me. and I don't know. I've, I've had a couple good finds like that. But you also, you also end up like, it can be depressing like I remember I was in a blockbuster that was closing down and they were like there were like 40 copies of Splice Oof. for sale and for whatever reason <laughs> I was like uh, I just need to get out of here <laughs> <laughs> that's an excellent story uh, <laughs> I just got really depressed yeah. I don't know why I like Splice <laughs> no it, it makes sense It's it's the end and people, yeah, yeah. people are leaving behind. <laughs> uh, anyways, so at the, I know we were talking about what was going on in America at the same time, kind of things like that. But when it comes to like pre this and a John Wayne era, like how familiar are you guys with the John Wayne stuff? Yeah, I'm definitely more familiar with. American westerns than Italian ones, um, but I, I love Italian ones as well. But yeah, I'm pretty well versed in that genre. Yeah, I just I think my favorite John Wayne the, is probably ones... um, Rio Bravo. If I had to pick one, or uh, I like uh, Red River. I, I yeah, think it's really good. Yeah, and then Manny Shot Ludwig Valance. I really love too. Yeah, it's funny. I like um, I like John Ford, but I kind of prefer. I don't like what do you do John Ford like every western yeah. ever no no I know John Ford but, but I, I kind of prefer his, like you his were uh, collabs up. with uh, Henry Fonda over mm. over John Wayne actually. okay because he made a bunch with Fonda and like um yeah some some of them are really really great but uh, yeah. yeah no like I've, I've seen I've seen a lot of American westerns um I've seen, you know, some of the European ones too, like uh, the ones that were based on Carl May's uh, Western stories, the like German fascination with the American West and uh, mm. Winnetou and Old Shatterhand, and they, you know they'd go and film in Yugoslavia and they would have like, you know, they'd be a big production. They they would be actually bigger than like a lot of these Italian movies where it would be shown in seventy millimeter. And like my father said. Um, he went with his grandfather who hadn't seen the movie in like 30 years to go and see Winnetou and it was like in 70 millimeter and it was like the best way to show somebody who hadn't seen a movie in like wow. decades <laughs> new movie um so like those westerns were big my father is he's in a Czech western he played a deputy in <laughs> a Czech movie western but hmm. it's, it's more like a comedy so uh that's a little bit funny I, I it was like weird I I didn't even know he did this for like the longest time and then it came up and it was just like oh yeah I thought it'd be fun and like he was never a serious actor or anything like that it was just like a weird thing where he had an opportunity to be in it but <laughs> I always thought that yeah. was kind of funny uh, yeah like I think also just it's interesting how Europe was fascinated with um, American culture and like I remember I was uh, reading about uh, denim jeans and how like 
places like Italy, uh, you know, they've come up with their own brand, like rifle jeans, to try to sell something that sounded American. And I think like the Japanese version was um, Big John, I'm pretty sure. Uh, and, you know, they'd come up with these names and they'd sell them almost like, hey, you know, authentic rifle jeans. And you would think that, oh, they must be American. And then somebody would show up with like a pair of Levi's and they'd be like, those must be fake. Like those can't be real American <laughs> like, jeans. But, you know, it, it's a little bit similar with the movies where you had, uh, you had that formula of trying to like duplicate or present something like it's uh, an American movie. Like, oh, we're going to do Son of Captain Blood and stick uh, Errol Flynn's son in there and try to sell it like it's a real American movie. And there were lots of those kinds of films. But, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, early Italian. You know, I think you can oh, see sorry. like... Oh, no, it's fine. You can go ahead. But like, I, I just think like there, there was a real love of American culture and you can see it all throughout like European films. People were interested in America. There's a really cool French film. Um, I'm blanking on the title, but it's about this guy who I think he sells his motorbike and he buys like an American car, which was like unusual at that time in France and like just how cool he was. And everyone thought it was cool. And like, you know, there were films like that being made where people were just fascinated with Americana and American history and the Western export was definitely a part of that. So, yeah. Now, I was just going to say that some of the, the, the do, early do uh, Italian Westerns had titles like Gunfight at High Noon. So just trying to make you think that this is a, an American product. Well, what was... Um, I think when they released Fistful of Dollars, what was Sergio Leone's pseudonym in that movie? Oh, they, they had yeah. like a fake American name, like and like Ennio Morricone wasn't credited as Ennio Morricone. Um, I'd have to look this up, but I'm pretty sure they had like they had pseudonyms that sounded like American names to try to sell it as like an American movie. And I think like not really for American audiences, but just for like European audiences where you'd get stuff and it would be dubbed anyway, and like you wouldn't necessarily know. Um, and I know like uh, behind the, the Iron Curtain like that was kind of one type of American film that was sort of considered acceptable to import that you know like not everyone would see every American movie but like a lot of these westerns could kind of get through because they were considered apolitical which is really funny yeah. to think about it now <laughs> but uh, like they were kind of considered safe like oh it's just like you know good guys bad guys shooting at each other and it's it's like kind of harmless cinema in a way it was thought of i guess let's see i was trying to look up that uh the pseudonym that he went under i feel like uh, just up. recently there were there were some italian horror movies and stuff like that that were like previously credited to some fake American name like on DVD release and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and I think it probably had... confused some of the crediting, like even even fairly late, like I've noticed mistakes on IMDb for usually like international movies or I'm still like I don't know, I've noticed like mistakes on the like Russian films, IMDb pages and stuff like that where things are given weird credits. Um, sorry, I'm just looking up this trying to find this like one factoid about Sergio Leone <laughs> uh... while you're doing that Martin um, I just I just okay. really like this quote that I found from actor and stuntman Benito Stefanelli this just goes back to the violence we were talking about 
Uh, when you hate the bad guy for the whole movie, then you expect him to die in a certain manner. He has to pay for his evil deeds, so the act of death has to be portrayed as we do, the Italian way, from the guts. <laughs> That's, uh, yep. yep. I can't disagree. No, I don't know. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, uh, did you find what you were looking for, Martin? Uh, not yet. Sorry. Yeah, I'll, no, I'll, I'll let it go. <laughs> it's, okay. I, I swear this is like a real fact. I'm not just making this up, but, uh, we, we no, I, I, <laughs> I know you're telling the truth. I can't like I. I would think it would just be in the trivia at least for the I am on IMDb, but my yeah uh, yeah I've scrolled through the whole thing and I I did not find it. I'm looking at the trivia now, but uh, I don't see it. Yeah, usually they have crazy oh, credits. Okay, I found it. Oh. Uh, Sergio Leone. All right, any guesses what the name was? Bob Robertson. Um, what? Sergio <laughs> Leone was credited as Bob Robertson. So yeah, that's a, I mean that's a sounding name. Yeah, and Ennio Morricone was credited as Dan Savio. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's pretty ridiculous. That's that's like the American version of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Ford Prefect or Prefect. Massimo like, what, what sounds... Delamano, the cinematographer, was credited as Jack Dalmas. <laughs> Dalmas. So, Not familiar with that. It. Okay, I knew I knew this was a thing, but yeah, it was basically just to like try to pass it off as like an American movie to European mm -hmm. markets. <laughs> but then, like, again, right. it's funny when these movies took off, and it's like you know, Django's a big hit, so now we have. 30 knockoff yeah. Django movies with like how can we stick Django mm -hmm. in the title or like uh, any any Franco Nero movie when he was um, when they were like reselling it to other markets they would like stick Django in the title so he would be like he'd be playing a detective and then they would retitle it like Detective Django and stuff like that so. yeah oh that was like um, oh, something about a when one of uh god forget it <laughs> i'm i'm tired anyways i was gonna say we've been going on for a while um let's i think uh, some of us want to go to bed and me john probably too because he has to go to work martin i know you're going to be up until three yep um, so <laughs> I think you guys uh, did an excellent job of covering for me, covering for Spencer, and I really My appreciate pleasure. it. <laughs> Thank you for having us. It's always it's uh, great yeah. to talk to you, and it's it's always yeah. nice talking to John. So. Yeah, I, we um, should do more. I, I keep trying to look for excuses for us to like be on a podcast together. So yeah, for, yeah, definitely anytime. Hmm? I'm going to write that down for future reference uh, for my podcast. Uh, do, do either of you have anything you want to plug that is coming out soon? Uh, John, any episodes you're going to put um, uh, uh, Just last night, I did uh, an episode of Movies from Hell where Bradley, Dan, and I talked about Phil Tippett's Mad God. Uh, so that should be out. He 
here uh, very soon. So uh, that was a lot of fun. I can't wait to yeah. see that. That looks incredible. It's an experience. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about you, Martin? Yeah. Um, I guess I have a Total Recall episode of the Pink Smoke podcast that should be out kind of soon. And I think next weekend I'm recording a big, long podcast episode on uh, Errol Morris's series of documentaries for HBO oh, wow. First Person with uh, Christopher Funderburg. I'm not sure when that'll be out, but uh, any any projects and stuff I usually just post about on my Twitter, so people can find me over there at Movie Kessler. Oh, did you Absolutely. want to do the the like 1966 recommendations, or do you think we want to skip that part? Oh, I, I see. I totally forgot. See, you guys are better at the show than me. Let's let's no. just call it that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, do either of you have any picks uh, um, from 1966 that you would like to talk about? Oh, uh, yeah. I have two uh, very different westerns from 1966. Uh, both written by Jack Nicholson and directed by Monty Hellman. Oh, okay. I, I was gonna bring up. Oh, one sure. Of them, uh, go, go for it. Uh, Ride the Whirlwind and the Shooting. Uh, of the two, I think Ride the Whirlwind is a little more traditional. It's about uh, a couple cowboys who are mistaken for bandits and are pursued by a posse. And then the shooting is. That's yeah. Hair Dean Stanton. Yes. And yeah. Patch. Awesome. <laughs> and then, and then the shooting yeah. <laughs> has uh, Warren Oates. Um, and I guess you could describe it as an existential western or an acid western, but um, somebody is shot for a reason that he because he in retaliation of he's mistaken for somebody who killed a quote unquote small person. <laughs> And then they spend the rest of the okay. so you think it's a child, I guess. So you you spend the rest of the movie with these gunfighter uh, with a gunfighter and a bounty hunter sort of pursuing a nebulous figure through the desert, and it's really hypnotic and interesting. Um, and so, and it's also sort of a vision of what Jack Nicholson's career as an auteur could have been if thing if history turned out differently. So, um, and they're also just so tonally different from Django. So I recommend those if you're interested in American Westerns from the era. Sounds good to me. Uh, Martin, do you have anything else? No. <laughs> uh, uh, I was going to say people should check out Seijin Suzuki's Tokyo oh, yeah. Drifter. And this is not a Western at all, but uh, it's also a very stylish film. And it's just like full of ideas like you know it's similar to I mean when I'm watching Jing I'm like oh like it he's carrying around a coffin and it's got a machine gun in it like that's so cool and I feel like Tokyo Drifter has a lot of stuff in it like that where you're just watching it and feeling like oh like I wish I could steal that idea <laughs> so yeah. you know people are still stealing ideas from Django you got Sukiyaki Western Django and Django Unchained and, um, anyway well, yeah uh... to Tokyo Drifter would be my recommendation if people want to see something that's it's not really similar, but it's like I, I feel somehow Tokyo Drifter and Django would make a good double feature. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of an kind of an anti-hero. Like I mean, he's the the protagonist. Everyone's trying uh, to kill him. It's it all works mm -hmm. out. Yeah, yeah. That's that is in my top ten oh, list wow. of all time for movies. So cool. I love that one. Uh, 
I've basically recommended everything that I have seen on from this year, and I have not watched a movie since then. But once again, I, I this is probably what I said last time, but like the Japanese movies coming out at this time were it just blows my mind the different levels of creativity and just like quality that was came out of that time period you know in the 50s and the 60s so once again uh you you already said tokyo drifter so that that's kind of like a really cool stylistic gangster film and then the face uh, the face of another came out that year with the uh, not uh Akadai, what's what's his first name tatsuya tatsuya nakadai and it's a are you guys seen that movie I've, yes. I have not. Uh, it's on my okay. watch list, though, for sure. Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, it's kind of a science fiction movie uh, because the technology that they do doesn't, I don't think, uh, existed then. But it's just, just such a mind twist horror movie slash mystery, I guess. And then... You go to what they do really well. Sword of Doom came out once again. Nakadai, he was on fire. He's, he's, mm. he's always been on fire. Oh yeah, <laughs> never stopped yeah. being on fire. Yeah, definitely the greatest Japanese actor that is currently alive. Uh, and yeah, that's that's an excellent science, uh, not science fiction movie. Oh my god, I've got mixed up. Uh, samurai movie, and he also is kind of an anti-hero just the way he or I mean he's the villain in it but yeah he's maybe not even an anti-hero he's just a, yeah. a killer <laughs> just yes yeah. it, once again uh, an excellent film and the last one I'll mention is something we have talked about a bunch of times including on a, the episode we did which is The Pornographers oh, yeah. by Imamura uh, yeah Shohai Imamura it's such a different movie. Like I would compare it to almost um, some like Ozu. If Ozu <laughs> was hanging out with, uh, with you know people who were yeah. a little more, mm-hmm, a little more spicy. Uh, more like his films are amazing, but also like I, I can't watch too much. Like I did a podcast way back <laughs> when, and um, I watched too many of them too close together, and I got like depressed for like. <laughs> more than a week after just like <sighs> after seeing just the depths that humanity can plunge <laughs> into like it's just uh like small doses next time yeah but yeah great great film you gotta you gotta watch texas chainsaw massacre <laughs> to make yourself feel better <laughs> <laughs> all right okay i think we are good now there uh if uh, you want to hear me talk about science fiction movies, uh, there's a huge back catalog for uh, Please Don't Send Me Into Outer Space. Uh, used to do it with my two co-hosts, my good friends, still good friends. They're just doing other things. And pretty soon, I really mean it this time, <laughs> there will be more episodes dropping where I have a person on and we just talk about a movie together. And also science fiction as a genre, a little bit of interview stuff like that. 
I hope people will like it. And uh, that's about it. Spencer probably is going to be on stuff. He usually has a bunch of things that he's going to plug. So um, if you are worried about Spencer, you can donate uh, $5 in his name to his legal care of fund. Joel Torres, P.O. Box. Uh, uh, okay, never mind. <laughs> the brain just told me that was bad taste. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank you. And listener, thanks for listening. The show can be found on Twitter at PianoPlayerPod. Our email is still highlowpod at gmail.com. You can find a show on Spotify, Podbean, and various other places where you can find podcasts. Our intro music is by Vivian Fop, and our cover art is by Sarah Roberts. You can find her art at sarahkathleenroberts.com. And thank you for listening.